morning, everybody. It's uh, great to see the people that are here and people joining us through our live stream, YouTube. Uh, I love the fact that we have this kind of hybrid service going on so that uh, people are able to pre-record videos and send them into us so that we can worship together. And others like Colleen this morning, you were here and able to read with us. And at home, you probably are guessing who was actually here and who was videotaped. So it's great. Um, I want to encourage you, though, if you are ready and able to come to live worship, to actually come here, to do so, to get back into the regular habit of coming for worship here on Sundays. We've got a, a capacity of about 50 people right now, and we might be able to expand that going into the future. And if you'd like to come here Sunday mornings and join with us, make sure you go to the website to register, and then we'll know that you're coming and we'll know what kind of numbers to expect. Uh, so thanks everyone for being here today. Uh, we are starting a brand new sermon series, and October is one of my favorite months, uh, partly because of the leaves turning color and there's still some nice weather out there that we can enjoy, but also Thanksgiving. I don't know what it is about Thanksgiving. Maybe it's the big dinner that we have around Thanksgiving, but I just love the whole season of Thanksgiving. And so we're doing a sermon series around Thanksgiving, called The Search for Happiness. And so I want to start with a question. Now, don't shout out the answer if you're here. You can shout out at home. That's fine. But don't shout out the answer. But let me ask the question. Are you happy? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I, I think we hear it quite often. In fact, in 2018, there was a survey done in Canada, and it turns out that two-thirds of Canadian report, Canadians reported being very happy. I don't know if that surprises. It kind of surprised me. I wonder if they did the survey in 2020, what the response would be right now during COVID. But back in 2018, two-thirds of Canadians said, we're very happy. In fact, just 5% of people reported being very unhappy. And the interesting thing to me is that according to age, it was people who were 55 and older reported being happier than people in the 20 to 40 category. Now, maybe it's because people from 20 to 40, a lot of them have kids at home. The survey didn't say that, but I'm just wondering. No, our, our kids always make us happy, right, Christine? So I, it's interesting to me to have this happiness kind of survey, and there seems to be a real uh, worldwide desire to search for the happiest country. Do you know what the happiest country in the world is? It's not Canada. As happy as we are, Finland is marked again and again as the happiest country in the world. The happiest place on earth is Finland. So that might be a surprise to you this morning. So are you happy? I think that question has become kind of the gold standard test on whether our relationships or our work or even our hobbies are valuable. Does it make you happy? The conversation goes kind of like this. And these names are all made up. I have no one in mind, not even Doug this morning. Here's a conversation. Hey, Rick, you've been married for 35 years to a loving, faithful wife, but does she make you happy? As if that's the ultimate standard, the ultimate goal of married life. Or, hey, Sue, you know, your job uses your skills, it provides for your families, and it keeps you out of jail, but does it make you happy? as if that's you know, the ultimate goal for our jobs is to make us happy. Or hey Steve, 
You really can't paint to save your life. But does your artwork make you happy? And keep doing it, buddy. Keep going. And so this kind of question of does it make me happy is something that we use to gauge the value of our jobs, of our relationships, even of our pursuits. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon for me. But happiness in this way of thinking is a feeling of pleasure. Another way of saying it is, does this make me feel good? We drove out to Weaselhead Flats uh, yesterday, the family, the four of us, went for a walk in the woods. It made me feel good. It was happy. It was valuable. But I tested out my sermon on the occupants of the car who were completely in my control at that point. So uh, I asked them, you know, is this legitimate? Is it a legitimate question to say, does our job or our relationship make us feel happy? And the consensus in the car was, yes, that's a legitimate question. So I thought, oh no, what am I gonna do with my sermon? (laughs) Because I was going a whole different direction. But as we talked through the idea of happiness, what we came down to is that happiness is sometimes very subjective. And maybe a better way to think about happiness is in terms of satisfaction or fulfillment or being able to contribute in a meaningful way. And actually that's what we were talking about when we said happiness. Because our relationships, our jobs, our our families, our pursuits, they're not always fun. They're not always full of pleasure. They're not always happy that makes you want to dance and sing along. But there can be a sense of meaning and purpose and contribution within those kind of things. So I'm not against happy moments. I'm not against pleasures and laughter and enjoyment. I think we all need maybe a little bit more of that, especially these days. Uh, But I want to dig down a little deeper into what happiness is and what it means. Because I think that there's happiness that's for a moment, but a lot of our lives are actually fairly mundane, fairly ordinary, and even sometimes and often painful. So what do we do with happiness in those times? Well, are you happy? You know, there's a nation that's fairly close to us that some of you may have heard about. It's just south of our border, it's fairly large, and it actually has entrenched happiness right into its founding documents. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and, anybody? The pursuit of happiness. Uh, It's interesting that the writers of that document believes that these truths were self-evident. That means there's no argument about them. And I get that for the right to life that you shouldn't have your life taken away from you. Or even the right to freedom, depends on how you define freedom, but I can see that as a right. But the right to the pursuit of happiness, uh, it's interesting and I wonder if it didn't have the same meaning in 1776 as maybe it does now. Because it can't be, surely it can't be the pursuit of pleasure or self-gratification. Maybe it goes deeper than that. In fact, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, he explained this idea of happiness in the original documents at his 2005 lecture to the National Conference on Citizenship. He said that while in modern times, happiness is somewhat thought of as a a hedonistic kind of component, an idea of self-gratification. Back then for the framers of the Declaration of Independence, 
Happiness meant that feeling of self-worth and dignity you acquire by contributing to your community and to its civic life. And so in the context of the Declaration of Independence, happiness was about an individual's contribution to society rather than simply a pursuit of self-gratification. That's interesting to me. So maybe if we reframe happiness as satisfaction in life, as sense of purpose, and meaning, or as an opportunity to contribute, uh, then we can find happiness in our work, our relationships, and our pursuits. So here's three levels of happiness that I want to introduce you to as we go through this series. On level one, we have happiness of the moment. Happiness of the moment are when the circumstances of our, of our lives turn suddenly in our favor. We get a sudden unexpected blessing. We, we want to dance for joy in the streets. Uh, we win at playing Settlers of Catan. There's some kind of happiness that comes that's happiness for the moment. But there is, we've identified a deeper happiness, and I want to call it the happiness of the mundane, <laughs> the happiness of the ordinary, the, the happiness when things are just ticking along as they should, and we find meaning and we feel like we're contributing to lives around us. That's the happiness of the mundane, those ordinary activities that bring meaning. But what about the happiness of misery? Is there such a thing? Is it possible to experience happiness even when we're facing sorrow, even when we're facing misery, even when our world falls apart? And so for the answer to that, I want us to turn to Scripture and especially the passage that was read for us in Matthew chapter 5. Passage in Matthew 5 starts the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus did some radical teachings. I mean, if you read through Matthew 5 to 7 and took it seriously, it would radically alter the way we lived our lives, I think, because the teachings of Jesus were wildly radical. I think when people first heard these beatitudes that we call them, these happy attitudes, they were shocked. They were surprised. Sometimes we think they heard the words of Jesus and everybody received them well. They didn't. Often Jesus stirred up people and, and transformed their thinking. This is kind of the upside down kingdom that Jesus introduces to us. Um, these eight characteristics of those who experience God's favor are actually unexpected because even back then, it would have been a shock to the listeners because they think of happiness or blessing belonging to those who have wealth or health or power. And I think we think the same right now. Often we think of blessedness or the blessing of God associated with wealth or health or status or power, something like that, the good life, however we define it. But Jesus turns that on its head. That word that we trans translate blessed in Greek could also be legitimately translated happy. And so I want to do a, a rereading of the passage using a different translation. Translations that, that is a little bit more of a commentary. And I want to replace the word blessed with happy. So just listen to it and see how it changes our thinking about happiness. Here's what Jesus says. You're happy when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. How interesting. You're happy when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. 
You're happy when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're happy when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal that you'll ever have. You're happy when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. I kind of like that play on words in that one. You're happy when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're happy when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Then the last one, you're happy when your commitment to God provokes persecution. This persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. What's the bottom line here for Jesus? That happiness, the blessing of God, the favor of God toward us can be found, can be experienced, even when circumstances are not favorable. And that's the key. I think that's the key to living a life of faith in a broken world, is how do we embrace the favor of God in unfavorable circumstances? How can we experience happiness when the happenings of life are unpleasant? And I think that's the biggest part of our task as we go through this series. So how do we discover that? Well, I'd like us over the next three weeks to turn and examine the Apostle Paul, uh, because Paul is an interesting, fascinating character in the New Testament, and he did not have a happy life in lots of ways. Uh, But I think Paul has at least three secrets of happiness, and we're going to talk about one of them briefly today. Paul faced a lot of hardship in his life. In fact, he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what he says and just ask yourself, would I have just given up at this point? Would I have just gone back to teaching or even persecuting Christians? Because this does not sound like fun. This does not sound like happiness. Here's what Paul says. I have worked much harder. See, right then I'm out. That's it. I'm done. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I mean, maybe walk from now on or something, but three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Danger is my middle name. He doesn't say that in here, but there's a lot of danger. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Anybody say, sign me up. (laughs) Bring it on. That's the kind of life that I imagine as being a happy life. And yet, what is Paul's response to all this? Listen carefully to these words that he repeats often. He says, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And joy and happiness are related. And joy, Paul finds joy even in adverse circumstances. I would like to be like that. I would like to be like Paul. That even when life turns against me, so to speak, that I still find that place of joy. Well, how does he do it? Well, here's the first secret. Are you ready for it? The first secret of Paul's happiness, even when life was throwing everything against him. The first secret is this. He was loved. He was loved and he knew it. I mean, that's maybe not earth shattering to you, but let's think about it for a little while. He could face all of those things in life because he was loved and he knew he was loved. Uh, We don't always associate love with the Apostle Paul. He was actually kind of harsh in some of his letters. Um, And he he laid down the law and laid down the rules. And some people didn't want him coming around anymore because he told it like it was. Uh, But love is a huge part of Paul's writings. In in fact, the the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, love is patient, love is kind, love never fails. Uh, The passage that we read at all the weddings, that's Paul. Paul understood love. But for Paul, love wasn't just a theory. It was personal. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, and this is, I believe, one of the secrets of his happy life. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, and listen for it, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the confidence that Paul had. That regardless of what what was happening in the world around him and whether he was shipwrecked or in the sea or naked or cold or being uh, stoned or lashed or whipped or whatever, he was loved by God. And he had confidence in that. And because of that, he could say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You see, for, for Paul, it wasn't simply that God so loved the world. It wasn't a general thing like that. It's that God loves me and gave himself for me. Can you say that this morning? Uh, Do you have a confidence that you can say with Paul, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me? That's the root of happiness. That's the root of what we're talking about here. A lot of psychologists, I won't name them all because the list is too long, uh, but they would suggest that there are really two things that we need in life in order to have a healthy sense of self. The first thing is this, a sense of significance in life, that our lives matter for something. But the second one is really important, and that is security in love, that we are loved unconditionally without condition, without strings attached. If we don't have that, we will not thrive in life. Paul was able to say, the son of God who loved me and gave himself more for me. That's the power of the gospel. So how do we know that we are loved by God? Do you ever think about that? I mean, the preacher stands up here and says, oh, you're loved by God. God loves you. It has a great plan for your life. All those cliches that we throw out there. But how do we actually know that God loves us. Well, here's a couple ideas that you can think about. First of all, through creation. We know that we are loved by God because of the created order 
around us. I sensed that yesterday as we went out to Weaselhead Flats and kind of got lost for a bit, meandering down toward uh, the reservoir and saw the beauty of the trees and the paths and I was with the family and there's a sense that there was the love of God because of the creation around us. And this is exactly what Paul says. Paul in Romans chapter one says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God's divine nature is evident in his creation. God is love. Therefore, his creation shows us that he loves us. I wonder if we would treat the world differently if we understood that creation is an extension of God's love, that creation is an expression of the love of God. Would that change our attitude and our relationship to the created order around us? I wonder, I think it would. Thomas Aquinas, he wrote this. When we say that there is a procession of love, we show that God produced creatures, not because he needed them, but on account of the love of his own goodness. That's a fundamental understanding of creation, that God didn't look around and say, oh, I'm lonely, so I'm going to create something or I need a workforce, so I'm going to create humans. The creation is actually an extension, an outflow of God's love. And so when we meditate on creation, when we walk in creation, when we reflect on it, when, when we participate in it, we are also participating in the love of God. That's how we know God loves us. But it gets more personal than that. Second way that we know God loves us is not simply through creation, but Paul says, it's also through the cross. That's how we know. Re the, the creation is kind of the general revelation of God, but the cross is the very specific revelation of God. So Paul says in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. Not waiting till we were lovable. Not waiting till we had our act together. But while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That's the greatest love of all, isn't it? If, if someone took a bullet for you, if someone laid down their life for you, you'd realize that person must love you deeply. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so reflecting on the cross helps us to go deeper into the love of God in Jesus Christ. Next Sunday, we're going to have communion, and I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be uh, the first that we've done in some time. And uh, we've actually discovered these little all-in-one communion elements. So it's a little cup, and it's a little uh, wafer or cracker on top. And so people who come will be able to celebrate together. People at home, if you get them in advance, uh, you can uh, celebrate with us. But that sense of gathering around the table to remember the cross is fundamental to our happiness because it's at that table and at that cross that we realize that we are loved, loved completely, loved no matter our faults and everything else. I remember one time preaching in the open air in Edinburgh, Scotland, and we, we just had to jump up and preach on a pulpit when we were told to. And there's crowds of people. This is right down on Princess Street, if you've ever been in Edinburgh, Scotland. The art galleries to my left, and there's crowds of people milling around. And, and the uh, professor would just come up and say, right, you, up, preach. 
And so you'd jump up and you'd say amazing and wonderful things to people which were (laughs) theologically irrelevant. Uh, But one time I remember shouting at people, God loves you more today than he ever has. And afterwards, my professor pulled me inside and said, that's not actually true. It's a nice intent, but it's not true because God has always loved you consistently. His love doesn't alter or change. He doesn't grow to love you more. God loves us completely now and forever and forever in the past. God has loved us and he shows that to us through the cross. So through creation and through the cross, but also through the church, God shows his love to us. This is what Romans 12 and verse 9 Paul gives uh, some instructions to the church, and here's what he says. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, I know the church isn't perfect. We don't always love perfectly. We don't always care as we should. But this is a place saturated with the love of God in Christ, where we can care for one another, where we can love unconditionally one another and practice that until we get it right. But the church is a reminder that God loves us. That's what it's meant to be. Churches are designed, says John Bloom, to be communities of impossible love that only work if God is real and Christ's sacrifice is real and heaven is real. Churches are meant to remind not only the people within, but the world that God is love. And that sense of love, that confidence in love, in love, is the secret to living a happy, contented, fulfilled life. Well, it's interesting. I I was reflecting on this uh, the other week, that uh, back in 1989, at the fall of communism in Romania, uh, there were at least 100,000 children that were found in orphanages. I mean, the the orphanage situation in Romania was, was horrific. Uh, When they went into these orphanages and released the photos and the information, the nation was horrified and the world was horrified. And some of you might even remember that. Uh, There were situations and stories of, of people going into wards that were full of babies and it was completely silent. That's not normal. And sometimes it was because they had drugged the children in order to keep them quiet because they couldn't handle the volume of kids they had. But also, some of the workers said that the babies stopped crying because they quickly learned that no one would come for them. No one would come for them. And so they stopped crying. And, and that, that uh, failure to receive love produced all kinds of problems. And even people today that are now older in their late 20s and 30s that were part of that program are still working through some of the implications of being denied love at that early age. Our, our need to be loved is so profound. And so that even our crying out in pain is an indication and a reminder that we are loved. Do you get that? Even the fact that we cry out in pain is a reminder that we know that we are loved. That's the essence and the journey toward happiness, the kind of happiness, the kind of satisfaction, the kind of contentment that can be found right in the middle of adverse circumstances. Well, let me end with the question I started with. Are you happy?
Well, not all the time, right? But maybe that question isn't the right starting point. So here's another question. Are you loved? Are you loved? I can say with confidence this morning for each and every one of you here and everyone joining us through YouTube, yes, you are. Absolutely. Without holding back, I can say that we are loved and God has proven his love to us, especially through Jesus. And my recommendation to us today is instead of pursuing happiness, pursue love, receiving love, being loved, and loving others, and happiness will follow. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you loved us even before we loved you. Thank you that you didn't wait for us to somehow clean up our act and be lovable before you sent your son. Help us, Father, to fully receive your love today, even in our broken state, even in our pain, even in our sorrow and our suffering, to have the confidence that we are loved by you. And may we express that love to one another here in this congregation and in our community. We ask for your help and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.